Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern, and this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. This week on Conceptually Speaking, Julie and I chatted with Dr. Tiffany Mitchell-Patterson, an assistant professor of secondary social studies in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at West Virginia University. Before entering into higher education, Dr. Mitchell-Patterson spent a decade teaching students in BC and Virginia about history, social justice, and activism. Her passion and expertise for these concepts is evident throughout our conversation, and our dialogue is filled with insight about how to handle difficult but vital classroom conversations about identity, power, and justice. One of the many things that Julie and I admire about Dr. T. Mitch P.'s work is her commitment to encouraging students and educators alike to engage in meaningful, committed activism, regardless of the topic or context. All of the things that I was naming, you know, are forms of activism. It's not just going out and protesting, you know, learning more about how to do this work. It's taking that stand, taking that stand in front of your students, supporting them with that. But also activism requires this notion of sacrifice. You can't be comfortable as an activist. I tell my students all the time, I can go back to working at uh, the cashier. I can go back to doing something else. You know, I am willing to sacrifice this job so that y'all hear these truths. And that's my commitment to you. And you have to be willing. And I know that's hard to say because, you know, people have families and things to take care of, but that's just how passionate I am about this work. And not only in my job at the schoolhouse, but also outside of it. But I think there's multiple ways. Get on those curriculum committees. Get on, you know, the PTA and the school boards and be the liaison. Help work within your school. But then most importantly, your classroom is the site of change. So think about what you're doing, examining your practices. Those are really huge steps. It's action-oriented. And you want to look at ways that you are, like they say, either, you know, you're complicit, right? Or you're disrupting and dismantling. So which side of that you are going to be on? We know that institutional racism exists in education. We know that the curriculum is biased. Now, what are you doing about it? For anyone looking for ways to instill passion in their students for social justice, this episode is for you. We hope you enjoy the dialogue and learn as much as we did about how to engage learners in learning that leads to liberation. Our guest this week is Dr. Tiffany Mitchell-Patterson, Assistant Professor of Secondary Social Studies at West Virginia University. Happy to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. So could you talk to us a little bit about your perspective on social justice education and how that has maybe shaped the way that you approach teaching teachers, um, how to orient it and bring it into their own classroom practice? Absolutely. I know that social justice a lot of times can really feel ambiguous. Um, But to me, it's really my life's work. It's my lived experience. I have seen what injustice has, what looks like in different contexts. And I mean, part of the whole reason that I 
transition into becoming an ed educator is because I wanted to help raise an army of revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. and, and what I tell them is that in whatever field that they choose, I'm hoping that they would choose a path of justice, that they would do what's right, that they would stick up when they see things that are wrong and also understand that they could be wrong themselves mm -hmm. and that they were all on this continuum and we're growing and we want to make this world a better place. I know it sounds cheesy, but <laughs> it's a mm -hmm. fight that um, when you have studied, you know, um, movements and things that have occurred in our country, we know um, how it's impacted many different groups. It's how can we then bring that into the classroom? So that's what I did in my work as a teacher, as a working when I worked with youth, and then now as a teacher educator, really thinking about, okay, what are you bringing into the classroom and how we're cultivating an environment where students can feel like they can tackle things and have that historical underpinning, but also those strategies and um, kind of inspiration to do good works. Will everyone become social justice warriors and champions? No, but will they have heard about social justice and champions? Yes. And so that's kind of how, um, that's my jam. So that's what I'm into. And that's the work that I like to do. Love it. Love it. We have been wanting Dr. TMP on this podcast for so long. So you have, you are a friend of me and Trevor. Uh, I am. You, yeah, you presented, uh, we presented all together at in Forsyth County, where another one of my, our teammates works um, a couple summers ago. And you and I are from Chavez days. Uh, Trevor's always saying to me, Julie, your Chavez Rolodex is something else. Right. Amazing, I mean... amazing humans. Um, and so I love it. So it's kind of fun because when I first met uh, Tiffany, she was known as T, T. Mitch because um, her, her share last name at the time was Mitchell, which is, you know, still your last name. I still go by that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with this with this new main man in her life, I don't know if you remember this, Tiffany, when you and I first had lunch, we reconnected a long time ago. Y'all had just reconnected and started yes. dating many years ago. So that was cool. Um, but, you know, I, I, I know they're saying that you always say Tiff love the kids or something Tiff along those lines and it's and they love you. Um, and so when we met, um, Tiffany was a a seventh grade teacher at Chavez and and that was a school for public policy so it was very um it was it could be a little bit tricky right of like uh, things that you say like I, I want my kids to be revolutionaries I could see some people being like whoa 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 right hold uh, the phone know, exactly <laughs> um but lucky for us we were working at a school that was you know had, was called Cesar Chavez who was an activist himself uh, the founder knew him uh, growing up and so we were all trying to make our students become active citizens to become informed active citizens um and you were one of our absolute superstars. So wow, how cool that now you're a professor. Um, and so we've been wanting to get you on this show. I told Trevor, I said, you know what I saw on social media that she said in 2021, I'm going to start to say no to more things. And I was like, oh, we missed her. <laughs> yeah, you, you better get me right now. <laughs> and so we're so excited that you said yes to us. Uh, Always. You going ahead and say no to other people. That's but right. Not That's us. right. Um, this work is really important. <laughs> 
So we love it. And we, we, we had you uh, speak at our summer event. You did a little lunch brown bag session and you brought up these same three topics that we're gonna talk about today. So uh, the concepts you chose were curriculum bias, racial justice and activism, just to sort of frame our conversation. So uh, could we start with curriculum bias? Is that, is that does it seem like a good Ooh, place to start? <laughs> let's, let's go there. <laughs> I, the reason I think that this is really important is because as educators, we're given a curriculum. Mm -hmm. We're given standards. Mm -hmm. This is the minimal level content that students are supposed to learn. And I'm within the field of social studies. And so it's usually histories and um, geography and economics and all of that. But when we think about that curriculum, I, as an educator, always transformed it mm. because you are a decision maker. Mm. And so much that's in the curriculum is actually violent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a strong word that must be heard by educators. Mm. Your experiences, histories can be completely erased, mm. minimalized, never getting the fullness of the stories of individual people. I mean, we mm. see that with MLK and mm. they like to tell a little slice of his life or with mm. Rosa Parks. We tell this one moment in her life out of this lifelong work of activism that mm. she engaged in. Mm. Um, total misinformation, mm. slaves were happy. You know, like there's outright lies that are there. Mm -hmm. And what happens when students can go through K through 12 and mainly hear white, patriarchal, cisgender, heteronormative narratives? Mm -hmm. They don't get to hear diverse histories, mm -hmm. or I like to say narratives, perspective plus flower. So mm -hmm. who's telling a story? Whose mm -hmm. stories are getting told? And so as educators, we have to, when we get that curriculum, look at it and say, okay, who's missing? And mm -hmm. actually, I, what I do is engage students in that work. Mm -hmm. Who's missing? Mm -hmm. um, even when back at Chavez doing, okay, we're teaching, you know, Egypt and Kush, and that's in the standards. And I say, okay, but are there other African kingdoms at this time? Mm. Are, why are we focused on this one? Mm -hmm. And with this, why are we only focused on a few individuals? And is this the only time you heard about Africa? Will you ever hear about Africa mm -hmm. when you go to U.S. history? Mm -hmm. And engaging students in that helped them to see, okay, whoa, there's some things that they felt that they mm -hmm. know what it's like when they've been in school. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like being in school and not hearing your histories. I mean, to have the whole 1619 project be 10 minutes from where I grew up, point mm -hmm. comfort, and I hadn't learned a thing about that while I was in school. Hidden mm -hmm. figures, hadn't learned a thing about that when I was in school, happened mm -hmm. in my hometown, mm -hmm. you know, NASA there. So I think there's a big opportunity when we really analyze the curriculum. And what I do in my classrooms, I have students um, go through and unpack the standards. What are these standards saying? Mm -hmm. Who's missing? And mm -hmm. how can you meet this standard by telling a different story? Mm -hmm. whose story can still help you understand the context of that time. Mm -hmm. um, because at the end of the day, this is important, not only for students of color, indigenous students, black students, mm -hmm. this is important for white students. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And so many, when I was teaching in Arlington, um, would say, why did I know this? Why are they mm -hmm. keeping this from me? Mm -hmm. 
they were in some ways angry here in West Virginia. Many students, mm-hmm. I never heard, I never heard of Megar Everett. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, these different individuals, it was white people that got killed during the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. But these are the histories that were told from, they weren't given that complexity and nuance. And in many ways, I think that is disrespectful to our students mm. that we don't even put complexity in front of them. We don't give mm. them nuance. We don't tell them these different stories. Mm. And um, it's incredibly biased in many ways. Racist, sexist, ableist. Mm. Um, when we think about gender and sexual identity. Mm. You know, that's, that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, so many things are running through my brain, so many. Um, but one is, you know, we talk about, we've had this conversation in our, in our team of, of people like you who are not only looking to advance their own identities. And so often I feel like we're having this moment right now of, of this racial reckoning, finally, in 2021. Um, what I see that kind of bothers me is when people only advocate for if you know I'm Asian American, I advocate for Asian American rights. If I'm gay, I advocate for gay rights. You know what I what I said to Trevor is, you know what I love about Dr. TMP is you're you are African American. Of course, you're telling that story, but you're advocating way beyond your own identity for all marginalized peoples. And I think that's just truly remarkable. I think that's uh, that to me is like you gave me somewhat of a critical attribute of. A modern activist, you know, I said this is a person who advocates beyond sort of her own identity because otherwise we're just going to be fighting with each other over our own identities, right? I don't know if you want to say anything to that, but I just yeah, wanted to share that with you. Both, um, I'm from the school of, you know, all power to the people. You know, this is about mm-hmm. liberation for oppressed peoples, and that's why I really advocate for the teaching of social movements in that it does help you to see this kind of cross solidarity that took place amongst many movements because when one group is free, that paves the way for other groups to be free. And even better is that no one is free until we're all free. And so I think that kind of finding those ways and even within movements because, okay, you say black lives matter, but all black lives matter. So that means disabled black lives matter. That means trans black lives matter and so be really making sure that when we're talking about inclusion we're really talking about the ways these it's intersectional it's overlapping it cuts across different groups and understanding that different you know everyone comes to this differently and everyone of course is gonna at first think about themselves and their own identity but yeah i've done enough studying and reading to know that solidarity is really key. Like how can we really think about not just our own, but really ending oppressive structures in general? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think this is related to, to, to so you and I are social studies. Uh, and, and so I wanna talk a little bit about almost the impossibility of being impartial. I feel like there's a lot of schools of thought in including probably some listeners on right now where you teach um, whose administrations or even politicians say, you know, politics needs to stay out of the social studies class. And, you know, I've seen some some ironic tweets that are like, so politics should stay out of a government class. Like, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, like just let's, that's just like saying numbers should stay out of a math class. Right. This um, is what we do. At the same time, I wanted to sort of uh, link in Trevor here because Trevor is an English language arts teacher. So when you're talking about a biased curriculum, 
um, when we're thinking about the, something Trevor is talking a lot about is the, the sort canon. of the quote unquote the canon. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on with the with a school district the other day, and they said, "Oh, oh, we don't, you know, we talk a lot about concepts." I was working with them on uh, what Trevor and I call human experience concepts. So there's process oriented concepts like argumentative writing, narrative writing, and then there's human experience concepts. Why do we write? Why do we read? Um, and she says, "Well, I feel like if I said." you know, grade nine should read a text about relationships, then all the teachers are going to say, oh, we have to read Romeo and Juliet. And it just was like this brain moment where I was just like, what? Like almost every book is about relationships. Like, what do you mean you have to only uh, read Romeo and Juliet? She just thought like, that's what my teachers will conclude. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, this is a super diverse school district, by the way. I'm not going to reveal who it was. Um, but it was it it was just one of those moments where I was like, wow, there's a lot of work to be done <laughs> in this area. And, and I remember, at the different levels, you know. I remember you uh talking about that when you were getting your your doctorate was about how sort of go, having your you were te- getting your do- I don't know how you did all this. You got your doctorate <laughs> and you were teaching full time. <laughs> you were teaching middle schoolers full time. Um and and you had sort of them go through some textbooks and sort of ask those questions about about who's there and and who's not, um, which you obviously your students loved. They thought that was a really engaging, um, interesting way to go about social studies. So I don't know if Trevor wants to say anything about the canon, or we could circle back to to social oh, studies. Sure. I'm so sure he I, does. So I think kind of. I guess a little bit more on the social studies side of things. I think something that I think is a little interesting is we're not only challenging teachers to sort of explore and and plumb the depths of their own identity and positionality, but in many cases, we're we're asking them and challenging them to reconsider their entire conception of what the discipline is and does. I Mm -hmm. feel like there is is this sort of prevailing notion of, you know, the the great men of history and these giant meta-narratives of like these sweeping stories with like these situated perspectives, when in reality, um, history uh, is a battle of perspectives and a battle of ideologies, and there are different power structures that exist. Um, and it's it's so messy and complex that forming any sort of organizational structure becomes really challenging because voices then get shifted based on your perspective. So could you talk a little bit about ways to make that complication of history, which is necessary, but also I think throws many teachers for a loop. Well, where, where do I situate this perspective? What's the story here? Can you maybe talk about some, some ways that teachers can organize their curriculum that will give some, some structure and coherence without marginalizing different voices? Well, I think first you name it. I was very mm. open with students um, that we are not gonna learn everything in here. The goal is that you start to get the tools and the critical eye Sharpen the eye that you're bringing with us because they all bring a lot of criticality themselves, criticality themselves. And so that you just sharpen those skills here so that you're able to then seek out these other narratives. So first, we don't know what we don't know. So first, we're going to talk about how we this thing is all set up and it's messy and it's complicated. And I talk to students how it can also be very personal. It can also feel mm. like, ooh whether you feel attacked or you feel guilt or you feel shame as coming across these hard histories. So that's one thing. It does take, I think, that necessary pre-work as you were describing. Like first, as an educator, you have to think about your own bias. What are what haven't you brought in? What are you afraid of? Hmm. Why do you feel discomfort? Mm-hmm. And name that. I would tell students, 
it's okay to feel discomfort. Mm-hmm. If you don't, I might be a little worried about you. <laughs> so, like you're kind of shocking information. Mm-hmm. So let's also not dismiss those feelings of trepidation that mm-hmm. should be welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it takes many, many years of study to really kind of, and we still want to, I do a little activity of will we ever really know what happened mm-hmm. in the beginning of the year? And then they just are kind of like, oh my gosh, we just, we found another artifact. Oh no, this changes the whole story. Oh no. You know, they were going around the room Mm -hmm. finding different. And I'm like, instead of how textbooks presented these finite stories, the story is constantly evolving as Mm -hmm. we get more and more Mm -hmm. information. Mm -hmm. And we also recognize that some information is purposely hidden. Mm -hmm. And that you might never have access to get it. So I would put something under my teacher desk, like a fact mm. of someone's experience. And I reveal it to them like, oh, I had this over here the whole time, but I didn't want to give it to you. Mm. And I didn't want you to know this story. And they're like, oh, that's messed up. But they kind of <laughs> get, so that's some a way to think of it. It's like a, it looks like a very um, simple activity, but students have very high level discussion around that and I that's the thing presenting like for instance when I put up the constitutional convention picture painting I put it up and I just said okay so and this by this time is middle of the year so they know me and they know what's going for I said so who's missing they gone down the gambit you know enslaved Africans indigenous peoples um young people women you know, so they're able to start to have these, oh, they're like, oh, ain't no, you know, so ain't no poor white men up in there either. Exactly. So now we're starting to unfold <laughs> like, okay, now we're seeing who's in the room, who's making a decision about how this government is formed and would be, and how is that problematic when you don't have those voices at the table? So I think there's ways that you can use the traditional curriculum to really start having students point out what's wrong. How is it flawed? They'll still know the Constitutional Convention happened, but they also know the problems that are with it and why it was problematic and who it wasn't there. And that's just some of the simple ways you can do it. But it does take that pre-planning of really looking at the standard. What is the goal they're supposed to get? But then also, who's missing? And also having students ask questions about, though this is that standard, you know, and then, you know, we've got the inquiry arc. So really guiding them through, you know, in social studies, on these really controversial type inquiries where they can start making meaning and understanding and developing an argument around, you know, critical things in our history, like the atomic bomb or something mm. like that. There's so many gems you just said there. I just want to sort of articulate them uh, explicitly that you, what you're getting at are several things. One is that it's, it's uncomfortable and that's okay. Uh, so, you know, getting getting okay with both the teacher and the student mm-hmm. discomfort. So the teacher acknowledging this is uncomfortable, that's that it, sh- it sort of should be. Uh, and then and then making that explicit for students. I think that's really nice. Like, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable and that's okay. Uh, in fact, if it's not, that, that would be weird. Um, that's number one. I feel like often we try to avoid, I've, I see school mm-hmm. districts, especially school leaders who have to deal with more with parents are so afraid of discomfort. And so the issue is if it's controversial, we're not gonna talk about it. And there's too much research about 
it's too much about about civic education and, and it's supported by research i'm like you know when people tell me these stories i'm like do, do you want me to send some research um <laughs> so everybody's listening and they want just you know hit me up on twitter or something and i'll give you yes. a whole lot of research about lots of the, research. the point the point about the research is that is that uh first of all you have to ask your, yourself what are we trying to do with social studies education and my favorite quote is actually sam weinberg who says knowledge possessed is not knowledge deployed. That even if kids know something, know facts, are they gonna use it? And I think everybody would argue that which what we're trying to do with civic education is have good, thriving, healthy communities and getting our students prepared to solve mess. Look, life is messy. Life is messy. Life is complex. And they know that. <laughs> you know, I always say this, relationships, I think this is my own two kids, relationships are hard. They're hard. They're hard. You get in fights with your best friend, with mm -hmm. your siblings, with your husband, with whoever it is, um, with your parents. Like this is that this is par for the course. You know, when you love someone, it's hard. And so it just is what it is. And we have to talk about these difficult issues. Um, and so I think that's one of the things you talked, you, you hit on there. The other one that that's almost more important is that what I think to be true, I'm interested to see if, if you agree with this. What I think to be true is that teachers should, should remain relatively neutral in sort of the facilitation of these things that what we're, but, but in the choices that you make, you're, you, you gotta, you know, you're making new choices if you avoid talking about controversial issues. That is not neutral. I would say that. It's um, not, teaching I, is a political act. You're gonna, you know, and I think especially with the upper grades, you know, I would tell students, hey, look, I want you to think for yourself. That's I, what I, I want you to understand. For. Exactly. That, is that the goal is for the students right. to, to make their own conclusions. And but also understand, and I tell them, you know, I want you, you know, I was like, you know, you could think what you think, you know, I don't mm -hmm. control that. Mm -hmm. you, you know, I don't care what you think. I care that you do think. And mm, I that, quote that, is, that quote is invisible learning for right. social studies. Attributed and I to also you. want you to know that people are going to think differently than you. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I also tell students people's um, experiences shape their worldview. Mm -hmm. So people often react based on what they know. Mm -hmm. Until they encounter something different mm -hmm. that might change their narrative. And in some mm -hmm. cases, it may not. Mm -hmm. So that's something that students would get a little snippy about when they didn't like what someone said in a debate or a Socratic seminar. They said, oh, that's just your worldview. You know, like, like you haven't been, that was kind of their nice piece of shade. But I, I do think that, you know, and, and I told also in terms of parents, I did not have any parent pushback, uh, knock on wood, because I was very upfront about it. Parent teacher night, I said, we are going there. We're talking about everything. We are staying relevant to what's happening. This is social study. So, you know, things that are happening in the news, we're going to talk about it and make space for it. Um, and so understand that that's the perspective. We're going to use media literacy. They're going to be looking at different media outlets and they're going to look at bias in all of them. You know, <laughs> so we're going to really break it down. Um, because I want them to be able to see the power structures and the narratives that are being told. That's kind of my big, where's this story coming from? Why is it being told? What, why is it, um, how is it being told to the, what is the agenda behind it? You know, really having them do some of that serious, more unpacking things. And then how can you utilize these different pieces of information to then construct your argument?
And that's the third thing is, sorry, is that that's disciplinary literacy. Right. You know, that is that is the going about the discipline of social studies. It's what historians do. It's what social scientists do, um, that they look for multiple pieces of evidence. They ask whose point of view is this from? This is not this is not new age. It's not no, because not all of a sudden yeah, women no. and, and people of color are able to, you know, like that. that is what that is what old white historians do. Yes. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, I think I think really helping, you know, Trevor and I talked about this earlier today was about going about the discipline mm-hmm. of whatever whatever your your subject is, especially in secondary school, is is a disciplined pursuit of knowledge. Um, and so, it's got to be it's got to have standards, got to have intellectual sort of criteria for which we decide you know, who's included, who's not included, all of these conversations. And that's a part of the standards. That's right. Use the C3 standards to teach the truth. Mm-hmm. If someone comes, anytime I said something about, okay, you know, I'm talking about enslavement and the constitution, that's in the standards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they listen to three-fifths of human beings, so I have a right to talk about this. Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid to also use the systems that they have set up. Mm-hmm to stop you from talking about something, mm. use it to talk about something. Mm. Well, that's, mm. that's there. Mm. They're supposed to look at multiple sources, right? Okay. Mm. So these are the sources they're looking at. They're mm-hmm. use common core, use it, mm-hmm. <laughs> use it. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you handle it? If you have, so students are bringing these different perspectives to the table. There's an exchange of ideas. Where do you sort of draw the line for a perspective being toxic or damaging or, or problematic? Because I know that there have been times in my class where I've been encouraging students to investigate and examine their bias. There's sort of like this open discussion. And obviously, if someone is outright or blatantly disrespectful, it's very easy to just kind of squash that, have a conversation. But when maybe the ideology that the student is speaking from, the perspective that they're speaking from is damaging or marginalizing or makes students uncomfortable, how do you handle sort of that? Because that's that's something that I've experienced in class while we're doing that identity work and having those conversations where I don't even know if the student realizes what they're saying is potentially harmful to other students. So a couple ways. So the first thing is I, in the start of the year, we do a lot of work around just um, debating each other, talking about our points, having it really be rooted in something like a mm-hmm. documents and things like that. So really having them work with how to have these conversations. So giving them that practice, one. But then two, things flare up. Um, Even when the best laid plans, they come up. One, there's some fundamental truths that I don't play around with, right? The Holocaust did happen. We're not even going through that, (laughs) you know? There are some (laughs) things that are just fact, and we're going to lay that out here. But I'll share, uh, there was a contentious conversation in the classroom around immigration and the wall. And I Mm. taught students from all across the aisle. Some students, in fact, had crossed the border themselves um, as a pre-teenager. So, of course, coming from that particular perspective, that whole um, conversation, I was proud in the sense that students weren't like, build a wall, build a wall, right? But they were also saying some things that were hurtful. Mm. And so I said, okay, time out. Let's stop here. There are some feelings coming up on both, you know, different sides. Let's really talk about that instead of just trying to belabor our point here. Let's really sit with 
what you're saying right now is hurting your classmate based on the experiences that they have. And what you're trying to say is that this is a complicated issue. There are some concerns that you have about the immigration process. You don't really understand it. And you're not sure if it's actually hurting Americans. That's your point of view, right? But can you see now how this is hurting where they're on the brink of tears? And they're like, whoa, you know, I, and then the other student that's on the brink of tears is like, you know, no, you have a right to your opinion. I'm just saying this is what, and it ended up fostering this dialogue mm. between them two where it was humanizing on both ends. Now I said, we can have this discussion, but we, you being able to really recognize what's happening and stopping and calling it out and pointing it out and really thinking about, okay, is this a point where we need to dive further? Let's maybe stop and maybe do some more research because this is a complicated, messy, nuanced issue. We're not going to solve this right here. So mm -hmm. at least not right now. So mm -hmm. let's right. maybe take a step back. <laughs> like, and with this information that you have now, let's get back in. We, we stopped. We stopped the debate. And I allow students to kind of go back and maybe get some more research and let's revisit the conversation. We revisit mm -hmm. the conversation and they still were like, we don't have a, we don't know. This is, we <laughs> went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and I, to them, I said, that is the lesson. Exactly. Life is more complicated than you previously thought. That's right. a hallmark of student, deep learning. That's right. What was really made me uh, proud was that student, the next conversation said, you know, if I can't really figure out what's going on, why are they making policies about this? Mm. Mm. Because mm. it seems like this is not just easy, like build a wall. Mm. So even for that student to say, you know, I may not agree totally with that, but it also don't seem like we have enough information mm. or this is just really complex, you know, for someone that's, you know, young to be able to say that in middle school, that is the skill we want them to walk away with. Mm, love that. So you, you know, I think what you named is that, you know, pause as a teacher pause. to be able to say, wait, well, let's put, let's hit the pause button. Let's acknowledge that there's some feelings happening and maybe let's, let's take a break and go, go find more information. I and think it's that's, so that's hard. really useful to go through. You want to finish that's right. You may be only got today <laughs> to do this, mm -hmm. but you really have to, those are those teachable moments where you really got to that having that instant allowed it to be us to our, keep our community intact mm -hmm. so that we can have future conversations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte built another one. I mean, when we had that, that was contentious, you know. Mm -hmm. What I love about that is as a teacher, you are modeling and acknowledging yeah. that complexity. You are saying to them, I don't have an answer to this. And, and thinking from some of the best conversations I've had in my language arts classroom or when students are, are having conversations about topics that are beyond, beyond me, beyond most yes. <laughs> in terms of coming up with the answer. And I think that ability to sit and really show students, you know, there isn't this answer. I'm not going it's to not arrive at the end of this conversation no. and drop this, you know, wisdom nugget upon you that will, will tie up our discussion of these complex issues in this nice bow. And I think that a lot of times our desire for that, whether it comes from you know, uh, this a disciplinary perspective or the perspective of an educator, our desire to answer those questions and to put forth answers, I think can 
I don't want to say it can be damaging, but it can be limited. It can be limiting. It yeah, can really cut off potential future dialogue to your point. I think that's delicious. I think that's such a, such great advice for, for teachers to hear. It may be teachers who are, are afraid to have these, these conversations, which is just don't be afraid to put the pause button and to say, you know what, this is a really complicated issue. We're not going to solve it right here in our grade seven debate class. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, just put in the pause button. And, and I like what you said about the keeping the community intact. Could you talk a little bit mm. about how you build community in your classroom? Oh, I, that's like my favorite thing. We are mm. a family. Mm. We are a crew. We mm. roll together. You know, mm. it's really um, important to get to know every single child, really to also have fun, to be yourself, mm. um, you know, acknowledge, you know, on the first day I talk about, you know, how I grew up and where I'm from and, and what I've learned. And by sharing parts of my story, I allow them to share parts of their story with me. And I think be, that openness allows them to um, really be feel like they can be themselves. I'm very clear on there will not be any disparaging remarks made up in here. Ain't themselves here, but we have to also understand that um, the things we say, we're gonna make mistakes, I'm gonna make mistakes. But my biggest thing is accountability. You make a mistake on it. I don't do no liars. <laughs> don't don't try to cover it up and make it sound pretty. You make a mistake, own it. I've had students that have made uh, racial slurs, didn't know it was racial racist. So I said, okay, let's talk about it. This is where that word come from. This is what that means. And you know, it's lots of tears often in my classes. A lot of hugs. It's also times when our community is strained. You know, where they just frustrated with each other. Mm. And also we need to acknowledge that too. I tell them families don't get along all the time. That's we right. might be a dysfunctional <laughs> family. Mm -hmm. But we love each other and we're gonna support each other. And when y'all roll out, we all represent each other. And so that's community that we foster is just such a beautiful thing. And it, it lasts. I mean, I have students from Chavez, you know, that I still very much in contact with. Um, and from Arlington and everywhere. So I think it's more about, I told them I didn't get into this profession just to teach social studies. I came in here to be in solidarity and be a support to young people at, as a small little speck on their journey. So them seeing me in that way allows them to really open up. And also by the way we approach the subject, the fact that I talk about LGBTQIA+, I've had several students that have shared with me, have been open with me, you know, because I talk about, you know, um, Jewish history, black history, all the students start to, you just start to get a little where they felt they couldn't be all of themselves in certain classrooms. They feel like, oh, so. Kind of a, a through line that I'm noticing both with the way that you're thinking and talking about history and with your classroom community is balancing particularities and universalities. So I feel like that is one of the hardest, stickiest wickets to navigate is, is how can you acknowledge the universality of the human experience enough without homogenizing it and, and acting as though everyone's experience is the same um, when we know that our, our racial, cultural, ethnic, gender, all of these identities that we have do shape and make our experiences um, distinct. So can you talk about maybe balancing those two sort of um, competing perspectives and, and finding some truth in the tension? 
I think it's important that they see, like I'll I make the joke, if you have a hundred black people, there's a hundred different ways to be black. Because sometimes they'll come up, oh, well, that's not black or you acting white. Okay, what does that mean? Mm. Now we have some shared ancestral experiences, right? But we get to be. And would you make that comment to somebody that's white? Do they get to be individuals or are they seen as a group? So I actually push this, this line of questioning on my students so that they can then unpack what that means because multiple things can exist at the same time. And I think what schools tend to do is they try to just give them one thing. Again, assuming that students can't handle the complex, right? But we know mm -hmm. from all the research, students thrive off challenge. They thrive mm -hmm. off complexity. They want mm -hmm. that. We also give them the supports to handle that. Right. But really just being open to talk about there's the Black experience and then there's an individual Black experience, right? Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. experiences. Mm -hmm. So even in history, I would say it's histories or narratives with the S mm -hmm. because there's multiple, right? So there, so even those little small changes help students to kind of unpack that or at least start to say, hmm, okay. So we, we're thinking you know, it's almost like think globally, act locally, right? So we're thinking big, mm. but we're also <laughs> thinking about that, you know, this particular lived experience that might is important, mm. that fits into that broader narrative, that broader tapestry. Mm. Mm. Wow, we spent so long on just your very first concept. Uh, we, we, uh, we, talk, we, we, you know, we, uh, I don't know if we even have time to go, but we, you know, we touched on the we racial justice. Yeah, racial justice and activism. I'm not sure if um, if there's one of those you want to, you you feel more strongly about. Well, I think they, they both kind of go together. So, mm -hmm. you know, when, since we're talking about overall bias, let's, uh, really think about then activism. Mm -hmm. All of the things that I was naming, you know, are forms of activism. It's not just going out and protesting, you know, learning more about how to do this work. It's taking that stand, taking that stand in front of your students, supporting them with that. But also activism requires this notion of sacrifice. You can't be comfortable as an activist, an activist. I tell my students all the time, I can go back to working at uh, the cashier. I can go back to doing something else. You know, I am willing to sacrifice this job so that y'all hear these truths. And that's my commitment to you. And you have to be willing. And I know that's hard to say because, you know, people have families and things to take care of, but that's just how passionate I am about this work. And not only in my job at the schoolhouse, but also outside of it. But I think there's multiple ways. Get on those curriculum committees. Get on, you know, the PTA and the school boards and be the liaison. Help work within your school. But then most importantly, your classroom is the site of change. So think about what you're doing, examining your practices. Those are really huge steps. It's action-oriented. Um, and you want to look at ways that you are, like they say, either, you know, you're complicit, right? Or you're disrupting and dismantling. So which side of that you are going to be on? We know that institutional racism exists in education. We know that the curriculum is biased. Now, what are you doing about it? And I think 
that's the thing I think we spend a lot of time on the knowledge portion and that's important, but we don't spend enough time supporting educators on doing, now what do I do about it? Giving them that space to really organize around what their sphere of influence, their locus of control, getting down with other educators. That's what really helped me being a, um, you know, in solidarity with other educators in the city and working together to see what they were doing and having that outlet um, is really important in my school and outside of my school um, to do this work because you can't do this work on the island, you'll burn out. You really want to really have that support and system, the community of support and, and self-care too. This was such a thread in my classroom that even if I didn't necessarily talk about something that day, they would bring something. Oh, did you see the news? <laughs> you know, did you see what happened? Let it be youth driven, student driven too. Like it, it's not something we had to do, you know, every single day of the classroom, but it was such a theme and thread that they could look at anything and pull out, oh, this is patriarchy. Why are they talking like this? They're acting like the woman doesn't even have a voice. She has a mind. Why is she in a textbook? Let it let them do the work, <laughs> you know. Once they you give them their tools, let them apply it. That's the other thing, too. We normally don't give a lot of space to, for application. We teach all these skills, 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 mm -hmm. skills. They might perform it one or two times, but really giving students time to think and process and grapple with, we gotta make time for that. One of the really interesting pieces of research we came across that we leveraged in our book was about um, sort of uh, building a culture of transfer, which is when you ex uh, frame content in expansive ways, you explain to students that this isn't just stuff that's in this dusty book we're reading. This is stuff that is in your lives. It is on the news. It is on your social media screens. It's everywhere. And just by framing content in that way, students begin to sort of absorb this expectation mm -hmm. that they're not only going to be required to make sense and meaning of content in class, but of the water world. And yeah. it, it was so cool to me to have this sort of fuzzy thing that I'd seen happen in my class, there's a, there's a referent for it, there is research behind it, and it really is powerful. And, and personally, I, there's no greater joy that I have than when a student takes something that I hadn't assigned them and just is like, Mr. Elliot, this thing that we were doing in class, I'm seeing how it's playing out on the news or mm -hmm. at home, or even like in my, on my cheer squad, like in, in any of these yeah. different sort of places um, where they can really, like you say, apply that understanding and knowledge. Uh, and I think that that's, what really makes them begin to value it is they see it's not just for this game of school where they're sort of like instrumentalizing and getting scores as much as they're like, wow, this stuff I'm learning in school is going to help me in life. And I, the, no one's just telling me that I'm living it. And I think that's mm. a really powerful way to approach any instruction, but especially in the humanities. Mm. Exactly. We always talk about real world connections and you sometimes it's as an aside. No, this mm -hmm. is real world connections. Mm -hmm. We want them exactly. to be doing on a exactly. daily. Exactly. It was through all of this that, that I had that epiphany that it's every time we encounter a new situation, we think through concepts. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it happens with my own little kids in little funny ways that they, you know, ask me if something is a living thing or not, whether or not it could die, because that's a critical attribute of whether or not something is a living thing. But I'm reminded of, of Trevor's student last year 
he used to have them, I don't know if you do this with your middle school students, but he would have them uh, make memes of mm -hmm. class content. And my favorite one I use in my workshops all the time, I don't even know what kid did this, Trevor. You, we don't even give this poor kid credit, but uh, it's like a cartoon. You may have seen this sort of meme and the kids can make it and oh, say yeah. whatever they want to say, but it's a cartoon <laughs> of, a, of a boy looking at a butterfly. Yeah. And it says me after Mr. Alio's class. And, the and <laughs> there you go. And, that's right. and this kid says, is this power? And on the butterfly, they wrote anything. Right? <laughs> there you go. Yes. Yes. And yes. I was like, oh, that's that exactly so right. But like you said, on your cheer squad, there's power dynamics. There's going oh, on, on your cheer squad, um, in in your family, all, in, in all of these different aspects of your life, there's some power dynamics. And so letting students be able to recognize that um, is really what it's all about. So love that. Love that you shared. Uh, and I think I love, I love too, I want to acknowledge that you're talking about activism for educators, yeah. um, for educators mm -hmm. to, to be at the table, to, to be having these conversations. You, that's who makes these curriculum choices. It's human beings. Um, they, they, they sit around in a room and they duke it out. Sometimes it could be quite contentious. Um, and so, you know, being part of those conversations is, is I think good advice for, for teachers to say, if you feel like your curriculum, first of all, you know, broadly interpret your standards. <laughs> it was what I heard you say. Unpack them. Uh -huh. unpack. Um, you, you got to beat them at their own game. You got to come with all <laughs> I, I have seen, you know, eight mentions of Black women in their standards. Mm, That's a problem. Mm, you know, mm, like you really mm. come at them with that data mm. um, and really say, how are we going to change that? It's concrete mm. actions. Mm. Mm. Could you talk and a little bit? You don't have to do it alone, you know? That's a big thing too. Maybe for the last few minutes, could you talk a little bit more about that? I guess you're kind of putting out the message like our, our place of praxis can't only be the classroom. I mean, you're, you're kind of saying that we need to advocate um, and, and organize in other contexts as well, whether that's the a wider political world or just like educational policy. Could you maybe talk about that specifically? Some, some examples, some organizations or, or some times you've seen that really work and come to fruition? Yeah. Um, so, and this probably is a whole nother conceptually speaking, but, uh, <laughs> but definitely um, you want to think about ways that you can get involved. Um, I know when I was at, um, in DC, I was a part of DC area educators for social justice mm -hmm. and, you know, really helping to hone not only my teacher practice, but working to get Black Lives Matter Week of Action, you know, adopted by different counties. So kind of working on those multiple levels with that. But also it's being on curriculum committees. It's um, thinking about how can you be a part of parent organizations that are happening and doing work. Um, like in Arlington, it's part of challenging racism and they were doing work around cultural competence in schools. And so there's all these different ways that you can plug in. And I understand that that's a, addition, right? You know, teachers are mm -hmm. already overworked and underpaid. But in part of it, in service of, you know, being a part of, you know, education associations also fights for your, the professionalization of teaching. So it's also letting it be known what are some of those barriers um, that you can help to mitigate, you know, for future generations of teachers and for yourself, you know, we need to be the one saying we need to be paid. We need to, uh, we need better resources. These students don't have everything that they need and we're paying out of pocket. So what are some laws that need to be changed? Why is this still based on property taxes? I mean, there's so many ways that we can be involved. And if you can't directly do that work, 
maybe supporting organizations that are doing that work in whatever way you can. And it does not always have to be monetary. It could be making some signs. It could be, you know, sending emails, thinking about ways. And teachers are naturally involved. Mm. I think we teachers mm-hmm. are running clubs. Mm-hmm. They're doing all mm-hmm. this stuff. So it's mm-hmm. like you're already plugged in so many ways. And why not also think about how where you're invested helps to be making sure it's justice oriented too. How is this also helping to break down some barriers in the way of students? If if you could recommend where teachers who might be somewhat new to this, say we've got a list, I'm, I'm just crossing my fingers. We've got a listener on who maybe has been resistant to, you know, bringing diverse voices into the classroom. Um, where would a teacher go to sort of start dabbling in this or doing their own self-education? I think one, the one advantage of virtual has mm-hmm. been there are like mm-hmm. PDs all everywhere, my all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely check out Zen Education Project and the People's Historian online. Mm-hmm. Um, teaching for change, teaching tolerance and their mm-hmm. hard histories work is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, education for Liberation Network. There's tons, there's tons. There's the Center for Black, you know, the Carter Center for Black History in K-12. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Library of Congress that mm-hmm. they do workshops. You know, there's mm-hmm. so many things mm-hmm. that are out there. Um, and I think um, you may also want to look in your local school district. There may be clubs and groups that you hadn't known about that are mm-hmm. doing social justice oriented work. Mm-hmm. So you may just type in Google, you know, are there some, or on Facebook, look if there are any groups mm-hmm. that are around education mm-hmm. and social justice in particular or what you're interested in. Um, and understand that this is a journey. Mm-hmm. There's no end point to this. Mm-hmm. this we're all coming in. We're all making the space, you know, mm-hmm growing in this and, and really trying to expand our knowledge in different topics. Mm-hmm. I didn't start off like I understood every oppression very clearly. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I had to learn that and I had to listen and I had to mm-hmm. listen to myself to be able to hear what other people were saying and then find those connections to be in solidarity with them. Amen to that. I mean, for me, as a white woman working in inner city schools, I had I made mistakes. Let me tell you, I made mistakes. Uh, I think we said for on another podcast with another Chavez alum, Io Magwood, we said that's for a whole other podcast. Julie will do a tell all what mistakes I've made. But you know, but <laughs> yeah. but by about the third time that I, a person of color said, "Hey, Julie, something that you said hurt." By the third time, I was like, "Well, that's gonna happen <laughs> because of who I am and what I choose to do." I am going to make mistakes. It, it was like the first, it was the third time, but it was the first, I was so proud of myself because it was the yeah. first time that I did not get defensive. Right. You, the you, first you, time you, that, I, that I said, oh man, thank you for telling me that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Um, and I'm sorry, that's not, was not my intent. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I really appreciate that you bring that aspect to it, that, that we all make mistakes when, mm-hmm. when you, when you go there, but this is, like I said earlier, it's about relationships. You don't think I make mistakes with my children? Okay. I got to say sorry all the time. You can't be holding it down mm-hmm. in the classroom. We are not above That's right. That's right. We have to really break down and, and take that ownership. And I say to my students, that's my commitment to you as I'm going to take ownership of my actions and that's what I expect. Mm-hmm, and that's that mm-hmm. high expectation as well. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not only modeling, but I'm setting this expectation that we're, we're in this together mm-hmm. and we're going to try our best to, you know, be better 
well, five months or 10 months we're together. So much to learn from you. I wish you were my social studies education professor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Speaking of which, um, I know you're on Twitter. Where, where can people find you? Where can people find more information about what you're doing, what you're talking about, yeah. what you're saying? Hit me up uh, at Dr. TMP. I'm on there. Uh, mm-hmm. Feel free to always email me. I'm at West Virginia University, so you can easily find my email there. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to be in community and talk with you um, about doing this work. Any publications coming soon? Any any journal articles, books, blogs? I'm working. I'm working, y'all. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. You, on women and, and how that's not being taught Black women. I got a piece on racial literacy and teacher activism and it's coming. Excellent. And we're going to have you back on when that's out. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Was it. really, yes. really fun to catch up. There's so much more we can say, but hopefully it's a little taste. That's right. Exactly. I think you said a lot that I think our, our <laughs> listeners will really, really benefit. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transverse.